looking forward to hearing your thoughts and feedback. Um, also thank the public for being here. I always like to ask people how they got to Crested View. It's always amazing to hear people's stories, how they discovered this place. But all of us got here somehow. Uh, and we chose to live here for a lot of reasons. Some maybe for the mountains, some for the skiing, the trails, the winter, the summer. Well, uh, lots of different reasons. But we all chose to make this place our home. And I think something that all of us have in common in this room is that we love this town. And I think one of the things we love about it is that it's a real town. Uh, a real community, an authentic mountain town. But that's being threatened. Um, the north end of the valley is, is at a critical moment. The authenticity of our town, of our community, is being threatened by a shift to more and more part-time residents. And, and the north end of the valley is really becoming a place that's only accessible to our wealthiest residents. And if we don't make a significant effort to create a community where our locals can live and work, we're really just trending towards becoming a, a Vale, Aspen, or Telluride. Um, beautiful towns for sure, but with a disappearing population. It really is about the people, and will, can we make room for locals? Um, a few trends and data. 20 years ago in the town of Crested Butte in 1997, the owner-occupied units and long-term rentals made up 78% of the housing units. Over three-quarters of the housing stock could be lived in by locals. Move forward 20 years, now short-term rentals and second homeowners make up 49% of the housing stock, and owner-occupied and long-term rentals make up about 51%. So in the last 20 years, housing that's available for locals has decreased by 27%. Um, the good news is that Crusty View's been working hard. There's 257 deed-restricted units in town, which is amazing. Many, many years of hard work. Um, almost 22% of the town's housing stock. However, 53% of all the free market dwellings are owned by a non-local. So over half of the houses are owned by people who don't live here year-round. The trends are clear, the needs assessment shows it, that housing that is available for locals and housing that is affordable for locals is disappearing. Um, you see people struggling on Facebook. I wanted to read a couple uh, quotes from Facebook that came out of a long string in October. Here's the first one. I moved here 11 years ago. This year was the first time I was considered homeless. Twice. Once in a motel in Gunny and two and a half months in the woods. Here's another one. I've lived in CB for 10 years. Five of them being in a car year-round. I own a biz and work two other jobs. We just closed on a condo in September. Thankful to be inside for the winter. So for our community to thrive, we have to address where people live and where they work. Uh, I'd like to just real briefly go to the next slide and talk about how we got here, just so we're all on the same page. 1998, the parcel was purchased from the CB Land Trust by CBMR, Town of Mount Crested Butte, Crested Butte, Gunnison County, and an MOA was signed to agree that the parcel be used for transit, parking, and affordable housing. A lot of foresight was put into that decision. Not much happened for the net for a lot of years. About four years ago, Gary moved here with his family, started spending more time in the valley. They bought a home. He had opened up an office, opened up a family business, uh, started realizing the situation, how desperate affordable housing was, and thought perhaps he could help. 
Um, so he began a search for a piece of property to develop affordable housing. Early this year, he made an offer on the property to develop affordable housing on it, and that started a county process where an RFQ and RFP was initiated, and ultimately Gates Co. was selected unanimously. Um, Gary put together a strong local team that we'll introduce to you in a moment. And this past summer, we submitted the sketch plan application, which is what we're here to talk about tonight. Um, next slide. Maybe real quick, we can just talk about why, why affordable housing really matters. Why, why is it such a big deal? Why spend all this energy, all this emotional energy, trying to get houses built? What are the impacts of a jobs housing imbalance? You know, I think there's numerous impacts, but I've just chosen three. And the first is an economic impact. How does the shortage of affordable housing affect our local businesses? Lots of ways. But one is it's just really hard to find and hire and keep good workers. I spoke with the manager of a local business, and he said, we won't hire someone if they don't have housing. And he said, that's probably not legal, but we know if they don't have housing, they won't be around for long. Many jobs just go unfulfilled, unfilled. Um, the needs assessment mentioned the summer of 2016 that 360 jobs went unfilled. Summer before that, almost 200. Um, it also predicted that 340 new jobs would appear by 2020. So we're not filling the jobs we have, and more jobs are appearing. Uh, some businesses just have to reduce hours. We saw that at the Avalanche. Uh, Todd hasn't had a full lunch dinner service crew since 2014. His full uh, winter crew is 60. He's hoping to find that. But the biggest impact is probably just on the overall customer experience. Um, longer waits, fewer hours open, stressed out, exhausted workers working multiple jobs, sleeping in their cars, on the ground, in tents. And the customer experience just isn't what it could be. And if that continues, people just won't come back. Uh, the environmental impact is a, is a huge one. You know, during the summers, part of our workforce is homeless, living in cars, and in tents on public lands. A few more quotes from Facebook. Having the most difficult time finding housing. Been looking for four months now, living in a van all summer, working four local jobs. Everywhere a ply or inquire is taken within minutes, it's snowing outside, and we still are leaving out of our vehicles. People living out of their cars without sufficient facilities isn't good for them, it's not good for our land, the streams, the forest. But every summer we see our, our campgrounds kind of overrun in Washington Gulch in the Slate River Valley. And then our workforce has to go live out there, or part of our workforce does. So it's not helping the environment. I think the other big impact on the environment is the commute that's going on. I think we've all driven south between seven and eight in the morning and just seeing the almost steady stream of cars coming up. Um, and then after five o'clock, it's going back south again. The Housing Needs Assessment mentions that about 845 people commute to jobs in the north from the south or outside the valley. It's just a lot of cars, it's a lot of expense, it's a big cost and impact on lives and families and the environment. I would say the greatest impact of a jobs housing imbalance is the social impact that it has on our community. Um, how does it affect our community? I guess it depends on the kind of community we want to be. Um, I think what we love about this town and what we value is that it's a funky, authentic, vibrant, real community. 
a real town. And that's, that's one of our town's core values, and we all love that. Um, and it's true, we are. We haven't lost the magic yet. But a second homeowner's increase, year-round residence decrease, this threatens the nature of, of who we are as a town. Um, quaint buildings don't make a neighborhood. Neighbors make a neighborhood. Um, I was walking home from my mom's house on Peanut Lake the other night, at night, um, and I hit a four or five block section where I didn't see one light on. And uh, it's just incredible how we've got streets that are just dark streets, dark houses. Um, so when we lose our neighbors, we lose our locals, we lose our authenticity, our diversity, our sense of community, sense of connection, and we really begin to lose part of our soul when we lose our locals. Um, so it's just something that we have to figure out. It really is about the people. Um, I'd like to just introduce our, our team to you. You know, when Gary came, uh, got interested in this idea, he knew that Gates Co. had a lot of experience, uh, 30 years working in workforce housing, a lot of knowledge and expertise. But he also knew that Crescent Butte was not Houston, and that he needed to put together a strong, local, experienced team. Um, I'd like our team members just to introduce themselves. Uh, just maybe say who you are, where you're working, how long you've been working in the Valley, your role in the project. Um, I'll start, Tyler. Sure. Uh, I'm Tyler Harple with SGM Engineering. Uh, been in the Valley for over 12 years now. Uh, and uh, really uh, just enjoy this Valley. It's welcome to my family. And uh, I am really passionate about uh, you know, traffic and water and wastewater and making sure we really do that right on this project. Doug Croft, uh, I've been here 40 years, most of you know me, I'm sure. Uh, I met Gary a couple of years ago and we started talking about uh, housing and uh, housing has been something that I've been paying close to my heart and I've experienced it uh, with uh, uh, the workforce and, and housing in the properties that I manage and whatever and so I got with Gary and we tried to Tried to do something about it. <coughs> August Haslam, president of Resource Engineering Group. We've been in structural, mechanical, electrical, and plumbing engineering uh, for this project. We've been here for 20 years, been working with REG for 17, going on 18 of those. Our focus is sustainability and efficiency, reducing materials used in buildings, energy used in buildings, and um, you know, the maintenance and total life cycle cost of them. Gary's been really good about looking at that total impact of the buildings and how that affects people, <coughs> excuse me, people's bottom lines who are living in, and working in this housing. So it's been really refreshing for me. I work, I work with a lot of developers in a lot of different places, Aspen, Pirate, Steamboat, New York, um, all over. And you know, usually people are trying to really cash in and run away from it. And this project's very different in the long-term vision of it and maintaining it and want to keep those costs of the employees that are living there down. And that means keeping utilities costs down and building efficient buildings. And that's a big part of our work. My name is Margaret LaPerfido. I'm with Strout Studio, Landscape Architecture. And um, I lived in the Valley for a few years as a kid and left under unfortunate circumstances, but was able to come back in 2011 with my family, with my young kids. And 
have always had this place in my heart. And um, you know, my sort of approach to landscape architecture and design, my lens is building community, preserving resources. And so how I approach every project is how can this contribute to my community? And how can I, within the design, within the context of the project, help preserve resources? And as a team and working with everybody else on the team, really feeling like we're on the same page and we have these common goals and these common you know, passions about what can be a really good thing for this community. Uh, my name is Andrew Hadley. I'm an architect on this team. Really honored to be on the team. Um, great to be working with Gary and all these other locals. Um, on this project. I've been living in the valley. This will be my 25th winter skiing, playing, enjoying this valley. And I grew up in New York, and I couldn't be happier to be in a place that has such a strong community as Crested Butte. Been working with the Crested Butte Bozar and designing buildings in the valley for 25 years. So um, really look forward to the opportunity to, to you know, bring this project to fruition and, and design some really great spaces and great buildings out on this parcel. Kendall Bergemeister, I'm local uh, legal counsel for the developer. And I've been in Gunnison, or I guess the South Valley, to use the nomenclature of this project, uh, for about eight and a half years. And, but uh, also enjoy Crested Butte and everything it has to offer. I, uh, Rainbow Park is probably my young son's favorite place on the planet. So <laughs> it's near and dear to all of our hearts. <coughs> I think we're missing Chris Klein. Uh, he's a construction supervisor. Been building houses in the valley about 10 years. You've seen his red trucks. Missing Dodson tonight. And, uh, I think that might be it. I think one of the things I was most excited about early on was the way this team come together, came together. I think if you add up the years that this team has been working in the valley, it's over 150 years. Um, I actually grew up here and went to school in this room, in this classroom. Um, I say uh, we jump into the actual project details with Margaret and Andrew. Um, do you want me to do the slides? Sure. And there's a couple of seats up here. Yeah, there's a couple of seats here. There's an empty seat next to you. Make sure to make it fill up. Seat up front up here. If you Industrial mixed use, so that's river land. 
And then the green is vacant or agricultural property. Beyond that, beyond those colored zones, you can see the cladding. You can see Buckhorn Ranch over to the east side of the site. You can see Skyland, the cladding through Skyland, and just getting an idea of what the, the cladded density is out there. And there's actually quite a bit going on in this corridor already. Um, as we approach this design, this design problem, as a team, um, you know, as I mentioned before, this looking at it through the lens of building community and preserving resources, we've spent a lot of time on the site, a lot of time getting to know the site, the views, the aspect, the grading, the topography, the drainage, the prevailing winds, the sun angles, and really using that information to inform the design. But not just with on the site, you know, really looking at the surrounding context, understanding who the neighbors are, what's going on in these adjacent properties, and looking at our property from their perspective, wanting to be good neighbors. As we begin to develop the organization of the site, using all of those factors as input, understanding where the prevailing wind is and how that can affect outdoor spaces understanding where the sun angles are so we can orient our buildings for solar gain and, and um, photovoltaic. Understanding the high points on the site, the natural topography. We don't want to place a large building at the top of the high points of the site. And we also don't want to have to go out there and grade it out flat and completely change it. So being respectful to the natural setting that, that this project is placed within. Andrew's going to talk a little more specifically about the structure types. Right. So we've got a model up here, which is the same thing as what you're looking at back there on the screen. South is down. Highway 135 is down. Um, so the buildings that are located on, and here, you guys, this is not oriented in the same direction. This is south on the model up here. Okay. This is north. This is Highway 135 coming through here. This is Rush Creek Road. So everybody's oriented <coughs> themselves. So if you're driving down Highway 135, there's a big berm between Highway 135 and the site, which actually does quite a bit to disguise um, most of the mass of this development from Highway 135 as you're driving by. Uh, the berm is about 40 feet above um, the height of Highway 135. Um, our maximum height of our buildings are between 30 and 37 and a half. Um, we have some buildings that are uh, that are gabled roofs. You're, everybody's welcome to come up and look at the model after the meeting as well. The gabled roof buildings are along uh, Brush Creek Road. So Brush Creek Road is going on the diagonal heading into Skyland. The gabled eight plexes are located along that road. They will be uh, very indicative of the Skyland community with natural materials such as stone, uh, natural wood, uh, probably cedar-shaped roofs, uh, things like that, and uh, natural colors. I've designed 10 or 11 homes out in the Skyland area and the communities out there. So I'm very familiar with the, the design covenants out there and the different communities and what people are looking for. So as you're driving up Brush Creek Road, <coughs> you're going to see you know, a development that um, that harkens to a lot of the architectural vernacular that you'll see out in that area. 
Uh, along the south side, you can see the twos down there. Those are the fourplexes. Um, those are more sort of like workshop type areas which have big garages underneath them with four units up on the upper floor of them. Um, they have shed roofs that shed to the south. Uh, we are intending to do quite a bit of solar uh, capability on this, passive and active solar. It's a great site for passive solar capacity. You know, a lot of good um, uh, south-facing um, facades of this project. And uh, so the buildings that are the fourplexes on that south line will be... Um, We'll have solar panels on the roofs of them to provide a good bit of the power that is needed for the um, development. Uh, just to the north of them, uh, the largest buildings on the site are the 24 plexes uh, located in a row there. Um, they'll be kind of connected through breezeways, which will allow you to go from the parking area to the main um, park area. Uh, those three 24 plexes are there. And then as you go around, counterclockwise, um, neighboring the, uh, the more residential development to the east and north um, are the duplexes. So we have eight of those that have their own uh, garages below them, their own access uh, off of that road on the side. Um, then there are the 16 plexes, which are the number fours in the sort of arc there in the middle. Um, then on the north side, you can see number six up there. That's the transit center. That's where the bus will stop. The bus will come in on its own uh, turn off off of Brush Creek Road. That long string of parking there is intercept parking and parking to be used for the transit center so people from wherever can drive there. Um, they could park there on a busy weekend, uh, you know, in July or something like that and take the bus into town. Um, but primarily it's going to be used for the people that live in this development. Um, it's not exclusive for them at all, but that's where that will happen. That's also a community center up there. Um, there will be lockers for all the people that live in the complex to store their skis um, in there. There will probably be a little uh, coffee shop in there, just a nice community center with a place to gather, places for people that have a 500 square foot apartment to go and watch football, sit by the fire, or whatever that may be in the community center. Um, down in the bottom corner, I think that's number seven, Right, that's the sewage treatment plant. Um, and uh, the water treatment is the circle up by the community center. There'll be below ground water storage and treatment up there. Um, and then, you know, the main concept behind this, this proposal that Margaret and I have been working on for a while, we walked the site, and I encourage everybody to walk the site. Everybody that's concerned about this project, go out and see that site, because I had driven by it for 24 years, and I really never had walked it, right? And when you walk it, you realize there's a lot of contour in there. It drops off to the side that we have the duplexes. There's a really nice, uh, you know, sort of drainage area that uh, drains um, in the spring that's a, um, you know, has some nice vegetation in there. It's just a beautiful lot that um, when you're driving by it at 55 miles per hour on the, on the highway, you really don't get a feel um, for the size of this lot and sort of the diversity of the terrain. But Margaret and I really spent a lot of time saying, well, do we want to create something um, that is like every typical development that you see, which tries to maximize uh, the space for each individual, or do you want to start to create these park spaces? And, you know, the biggest element, I think, on this plan is that large three-acre central park space. Three acres is a big space. Um, so we wanted everybody in this 
development to have access to that park space. Um, it's a great big open space with fields and you know play structures and a gazebo, and uh, you can see the circle sort of in the middle there, up towards the top. That's sort of the high point that we wanted to keep all development off of, um, you know, so that we were keeping off of that sort of ridge line that goes through the middle of the property. That's it for that. I'll start with the, the bus circulation. So if you look at the plan, you can see the, the gray arrows towards the north side of the site. There are two main entrances off of Brush Creek, or two entrances off of Brush Creek Road into the site. That second one where the gray arrow is is ingress only, and it may be bus in only. That'll, we're still working on the transportation studies, traffic studies. The bus would circulate pulling in there, coming through the site, picking up in front of the, the bus stop community center. There's enough space there for two buses to pull over at one time so we can have a northbound and southbound stop. And then the bus pulls back out onto Wright Ranch Road and takes the left onto Brush Creek Road, back to the highway, heading north or south. Vehicular circulation. The first intersection into the site will likely be the most heavily used. So the traffic that's coming in and out of the site is going to be close to the highway. We're not going to be pulling cars deep into the Brush Creek Corridor. There's a loop circulation through the entire site. So that's ease of access for emergency vehicles. It's more intuitive for someone that's coming here for the first time. It's easier to get around. And there's parking off of the, the main circulation. Um, we have 361 parking spaces designated for the residences. That equals 1.5 parking spaces per unit, which is about, it's a little bit shy of one parking space per bedroom. Because a lot of these units are smaller, this is hard to compare it to a house that's a four or five bedroom house. But when the map trickles out, we do have about one parking spot per bedroom. Um, no removal, well, and we also have, in addition to the 361 parking spots for the residences, there's a 69 parking space transit parking area that will be designated for parking ride and folks using the transit. During the evening or during the off hours, that could be used as some overflow parking and how that gets managed is yet to be determined, but that is additional parking. Snow storage and removal is the snow storage areas we've indicated in blue. And this is, you know, right now, that's about 58% of the paved parking and circulation area. So the requirement in town is 33%. So we have some room to massage it as we need. We know there, in some instances, may be some conflicts with landscape and circulation. And so we'll be resolving that as we move further down the design path. open space. So considering the footprints of the buildings, the amount of space needed for circulation, we still have over half of the site as open space. And not all open space is created equal. So I've designated these three different zones. Zone one, as Andrew mentioned, is the central open space, central park area. 
And a couple of key things to note about that, as I mentioned before, really doing a thorough site analysis, understanding where the winds are coming from, um, creating a space that's protected by these surrounding buildings. So the playground, which is a little bit harder to see in this slide, but is basically, you know, it's protected from the prevailing northwest winds. It gets windy out there. Most of you guys probably know. You've probably chased down a hat or two. Um, so really placing these higher use areas in areas so that they'll be activated so they won't become a place that nobody wants to hang out in. So that zone one includes playground area. It includes some multi-purpose open fields. So they're not programmed for anything specific, but they'll be great for throwing frisbee, putting up a couple goals and kicking the ball around, um, in general multi-purpose use. And then there's some more passive area. We, you know, if we can um, preserve some of the existing sagebrush ecosystem, we would love to do that. Um, and preserving the views on top of that knoll, as Andrew mentioned <coughs> before, that, that circle that, again, is kind of hard to see in this graphic. Um, using that space, using the natural topography and the amenities that are already there. The zone two is the common green, which is in front of the um, community center. So there's a manicured lawn, central area where you could, you know, someone could have a, a party reception out there. It'll be um, a nice space connected with the community center. Maybe there's a kitchen space so you could have a larger party or barbecue there. There's also a community garden located right there that um, you know, will allow members of this community to, to have their own space to have a garden and have this community shared garden space. Additionally, as you head south along that eastern border, there's a natural drainage area through there, an ephemeral stream. Um, <coughs> there's not always water in it, but there is sometimes, and as we develop this site, we'll have some impacts on that drainage. And we would really like to improve that and create an amenity with that area as well. And it creates a nice buffer between our property and the adjacent properties. It gives us some more space. We have a lot of water in there and can get trees like cottonwoods to grow and really fill in and create a buffer both visually and just the way it feels. So it doesn't feel like you're um, right on top of another development. So there can be trails, soft surface trails, benches, Kids can get in this ephemeral stream and have that direct contact with nature. Um, in addition to that, there is a perimeter trail that goes through, you know, wraps around from that east side around the south and then onto the west side where you can connect into adjacent trails. The Delhi Trail connects and goes into town, or you can head out Brush Creek and connect to um, hundreds of miles. And the last zone, buffer landscape islands. So those are the areas where, you know, it's not really programmable space, you won't play in there, but it gives that buffer between development on the site and the adjacent roads and adjacent properties. It creates islands, so we don't have massive areas of paving without any green space or any permeable surface. So those are the areas in between the small islands that break up the, the Permeable surfaces. 
amenities, a lot of them I've touched on between the community garden, the trails, there's it's about a one mile loop trail around the site. There's passive and active recreation opportunities. Andrew mentioned, you know, picnic pavilion, picnic tables. There will be, you know, smaller patios associated with individual buildings, so residents can have an opportunity to have their own outdoor spaces as well. You know, they'll, they'll be shared, but they'll be shared by fewer people. And so creating those places where you can have a place to go outside and barbecue. Um, Andrew will talk about this more, you know, with attached amenities like balconies and that sort of feature to really improve the quality of life. Make this a nice place where people want to live and interact with their community. The landscaping in general, you know, there are requirements of the LUR based on square footage of open space, and um, but really using the landscaping, looking at a, a native naturalized plant palette, so it's kind of limited around here. We have cottonwoods, we have aspen, we have spruce trees, and you know, really um, working with our native plant palette, getting wildflowers, and you know, there are already wildflowers that bloom in those sagebrush communities and making this from a landscape perspective look like it really belongs here. Um, and again, the, the active and passive recreation we've touched on already, but there are several opportunities for both just being outside and enjoying passive recreation and having more active recreation in the multi-purpose field. And, um, Andrew's gonna talk a bit more about design elements and architectural character. So as I mentioned, there are seven different building types, five different housing types and, and the other um, sort of community buildings. Um, we want to create what is, you know, familiar to people in this valley, which is, you know, different types of building types. We don't want to try to replicate one building type 240 times. So we have created a mix of building uh, and a mix of building elements that will uh, come to light. The duplexes are going to feel very much like a sort of a townhome, something you might see in town of Crested Butte. Um, something that's cute, they're small, they're about 1,300 square feet. Uh, they've got their own garages. Um, they line that street um, to sort of feel a little bit like a, a town of Crested Butte uh, street would be. Um, the eight plexes along Brush Creek Road are, as I said before, have the design elements similar to uh, the Brush Creek Corridor, which are you know uh, elements like stone, natural wood materials, natural wood uh, roofs, um, things like that with all natural colors, natural color palette. As you get to the interior of the lot, the design becomes a little bit more difficult, right? We have circulation, we have paths, we have a lot of people parking their cars, going into their buildings. So we've decided to use uh, a strategy of, of flat roof buildings um, on the interior portions of the lots. So you can see the three 16 plexes along the curve there, those are flat roof, and then the 324 plexes are also flat roofs. So about half of our housing has flat roofs. The reason we did this was twofold. There's, there's uh, height restrictions, right? So we wanted to keep the height of these buildings down. As we start to get a little bit higher up on the site, we wanted those buildings to be only 30 or 32 feet, so people uh, passing by and people from surrounding neighborhoods are not looking on the high part of our site and seeing taller buildings. The other reason is uh, for safety, public safety, for having um, taking away snow shed. 
um, so that when you're walking up to your front door, you're not looking out for uh, you know the snow coming from a, a sloped roof building shedding on you. Um, I was just in Taos last year, and they just built this beautiful new building at their base area. And Taos doesn't have a whole lot of uh, familiarity with big developments. And they built, built this beautiful new building with these sloped roofs. And I was there right after a snowstorm, and nobody was able to walk within 40 feet of these buildings because they had a foot, foot and a half of snow on top of it, and it was shedding onto the sidewalks and creating such a public hazard. So flat roof buildings can work. Structural engineer Dodson on our team, you know, easy to do. It also creates a way that when you have a lot like this, that your snow storage does not become unmanageable. So you keep the snow on top of the buildings on big snow seasons like we had last year, um, we uh, might have to maintain that roof. Um, those buildings will have a little bit more of a contemporary feel. We'll have some metal siding on them. They'll still have wood. They'll still all be natural colors. We're going to work with a natural color palette on this project. Um, you know, we haven't done the individual design of these buildings, but when you're talking about a 120 foot long building, you're talking about adding things to break up that mass. How do you break up that mass when you're talking about architecture, right? You do it by adding things like balconies, adding steps in the facades. You're not making a 120 foot long plane with just a bunch of windows on it. So we'll add a lot of architectural character to those buildings in the center. Uh, and then the buildings, as I said, to the south, the fourplexes, they're going to have uh, solar panels on their roofs. Um, they're going to be more uh, sort of in tune maybe with, uh, with uh, a riverland type development. It's a little bit more industrial type. They have big garages under them. So there's a good mix of building types in here and materials. But all the materials in this development, uh, you know, will be natural colors that are indicative of all of the developments in the Brush Creek corridor. I think that's the one thing that all design <laughs> guidelines in that corridor have is they want to see natural colors and non-reflective roofs. So that's, that's the architectural character. <coughs> So, just, I'm just going to chime in for one second. Yeah. I would say you guys probably have about five, six minutes. Okay, yeah, that's what I'm just going to allude to. So, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to density, and I know it's a big issue. It's a big, um, it's a, a delicate subject and the sensitivity for this project. There are, you know, when you look at cluster density versus sprawl, I think most people can agree that sprawl is generally not good for community. Um, and having some cluster density, is the antithesis to sprawl. The LUR touches on preventing sprawl through increasing density and able to preserve open space. The Crested Butte Area Plan emphasizes that dispersed large lot development is discouraged and that residential development should be located where there already is development in Crested Butte, Skyland, and Buckhorn Ranch. Um, there are scales of, or economy of scales regarding affordability density and when we talk about wastewater treatments you have to whether there are 20 units or 240 units you have that wastewater treatment facility <coughs> and so there are economies of scale when it comes to making making that work and making that make sense there are lots of ways to measure density we can talk about those a little more but I'm going to go ahead and pass it to Kendall on the next slide oh sorry so do you want to talk about your charts first and then we can 
so really quickly, there was one piece of the physical development that I was going to touch on, just because it's been a topic of misunderstanding. At the meeting, the uh, public meeting you guys had at the um, Center for the Arts, there were multiple comments about the Open Lagoon Wastewater Treatment System that was going to be on site. I've seen similar comments in the newspaper about that. Um, unlike the Open Lagoon Wastewater Treatment System that's at the East River Sanitation District that serves most of the Brush Creek Corridor, our system would be an enclosed mechanical system similar to what you would see at CD South, only about a third of the capacity. Um, I'm guessing when most folks drive by CB South, either on 135 or Cement Creek Road, you hardly even notice that's there. Um, but what I mostly wanted to talk about, next slide, is the affordability piece of this project. Um, that also has been a bit of a hot button topic. This table, which I think you guys have all seen a version of, on the left hand side shows household incomes as a percentage of AMI. So starting at the top, those are the lowest income households, less than 50% of AMI, all the way down to 200% AMI. The first, the next column over, rental units needed, is valley-wide, and that's from the housing needs assessment, and that is as of the year 2020, so we are not very far away. Of those, the number needed in the North Valley, so north of and not including CB South, 171 units by 2020. The housing needs assessment then goes on to assume that the market is going to provide a certain number of those units. And I will remind you, this assessment is post-anthracite place. So 78 units by 2020, not including anthracite. Where are they? You know, this, um, you know, just because the market will provide them doesn't mean we can take them for granted and pretend like they're there. And so the, the number, you know, that, that we think the community really needs to be focused on addressing is that entire 171, not just the 93 unit gap that is identified in the assessment. That is the number of units that the assessment says will only be provided with government mandates or other financial incentives. Um, and so, you know, this project provides both. It fills both of those needs, the free market and the gap. The next column over, Brush Creek Phase 1, that is the number of units that, in all honesty, realistically could come online by 2020. We're not going to have 240 units by 2020. It's, it's just not going to happen. Um, we're looking at, at most, 128 units. You can see the AMI breakdowns. Um, none of the various income level demands identified in the needs assessment are oversupplied by 2020, yet we still have room on the same site for growth, for needs that are going to come post-2020. It's going to happen. Do we want to be uh, have more room for growth on one parcel, or do we want to be going out and looking for the next piece of virgin land to address the need beyond 2020? Um, next slide. This was a another misconception that <coughs> and it, it's a little hard to understand. So I know you guys have a lot of time to ask questions later, and we can go through it as many times as we have to. But the housing needs assessment. Uh, in the left table 
broke out number the number of units needed in these discrete income brackets. You know, based on the math, we think we need you know exactly 47 units between 50% of AMI and 80% of AMI. And so to do an apples to apples comparison, we created that next column over Brush Creek Phase One to show how our units would line up with those needs. But that's not what the actual proposal is. We are not proposing to provide 20 units dedicated exclusively to households making between 120 and in this case 180% AMI. We are proposing you know, cumulative brackets so that, which is on the, the table on the right hand side, there will be a total of um, you know, 128 units in phase one. Of those 128 units, 84 are deed restricted in some way to households making less than or equal to 180% AMI. Of those, 64 are further restricted to households making less than 120% AMI, and so on. It, it would be theoretically possible all 84 units go to households making less than 80% AMI, but we have some flexibility there to address, um, again, the need identified in the needs assessment, which is that you need units across a, a range of income classifications, and we don't want to have empty units. That would be the worst thing for the owner, it would be the worst thing for the community to be so restrictive in your unit allocations that if the units available don't perfectly line up with the applicants, you know, you've got vacant units because you got a, you've got a 80% unit available and you got someone making 50% of income. So that's the rationale for that approach. Um, Next. I'm just I'm gonna, gonna yeah we're gonna stop go to council discussion right now and then I'm sure a lot of the rest will come up after the public. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, council discussion. Let's hear it. Any questions for the applicant and each other and ourselves? referring to well let's start the okay. lawsuit once you name a lawsuit I, I just you can look online and you can see multiple lawsuits but I mean I have friends that live in Houston and they and that's what they have told me that there's low-grade housing there I don't want to start an argument I'm just asking how we can be reassured that this community is not living in grade D housing well, I can't answer the lawsuit because you won't reference one. As far as the other part, I buy distressed properties. And every and if you look at the statistics that when we buy a piece of property, the crime rate reduces dramatically. Okay. I own what you would call Class C properties. Still own the first one that I bought in 1986. Mm -hmm. Have over 6,000 units. I virtually never sell. We have 
in the Class C type market, which is your workforce housing, mm -hmm. you probably have a move-out rate of 50 to 60 percent. My move-out rate on our properties are 20, 25 percent because we provide such good housing. And my housing is usually the best on the block. So I don't know, okay. but I buy distressed right. properties in difficult areas. Okay, I'll take one more question on the go, go to the next person. Um, where will the water come from? I'll let. Physically or legally? Water, physically, legally, yeah, all of it. Where is water going to, where are you going to get water for this property? Curious. So right now the plan is to drill on site wells. Okay. If right. you know if, if they don't produce the you know um, okay. infiltration gallery technology has come a long way in the last few years and an infiltration gallery off of the off of Slate Creek would be a you know worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Do you know where those might be on the map? Once you go ahead. Yeah. Uh, again, we're looking at various different things. And again, we are in the sketch plan phase of, of the county LUR process. Um, in the sketch plan phase, we have to, when we put together a water, uh, water report, in that we look at various different wells and the um, geography underneath the ground that's in there and we look at flow rates and, and all kinds of things of, of surrounding wells. Um, we're looking at both flow rates and water quality. And with that, we can kind of put together a, a, an idea that, yes, we think that we can get well water on this site. Is it gonna be shallow and really easy? No. Um, but that's part of, so at sketch plan, that's where we're, we're, we're at, where we are at. At preliminary plan, we have to actually drill wells and show that they can produce the water that we are required. Um, so in no way will this project ever get approved and then we come back and say, oh dang, we, keep, we don't have the water. Uh, the water will have to be shown to be able to um, be there physically and available um, for the amount of needs that, that are required. And that'll happen during the preliminary plan. Okay, I have more questions, but I think someone else can go. Uh, quick question, you mentioned the Class C housing. What range of percentage of AMI is that down there? Most of ours would probably be 50 to 80 percent. You know, blue-collar workers that make 15 to 20 dollars an hour. Okay. Um, all right. Because yeah, one of the things you, you mentioned, the uh, stuff on Facebook and the needs for these jobs around here. And um, I definitely hear it. I've got a business. I see it. Uh, I've got family up here. I've seen it forever, and it's just getting worse. So there is a great need for affordable housing, no doubt. Um, and I do understand the, um, I believe I understand the, the, the different levels of that, but when we're talking about, you know, and well, I'll say it build out 16%, and I understand it's gonna, it's basically market value until you hit these numbers. I mean, unless the A, the percentage is below, but when you're talking, well, with phase one having eight units that's 50% or less, which is 95% of these stories. Um, 
I know there are some very wealthy people who have had some great jobs here and leave the valley. I don't know if that's because they couldn't rent a place or they couldn't buy a place, but I know of a ton of people who either live down in Gunnison because it's cheaper and they commute up here, or they end up leaving because they can't find a place. And when we're talking about eight units being secured now, and we have to look at this down the road, you know, 20 years down the road, how is this gonna provide? And we have eight, maybe 16 units providing that low level. And then when you look at 50 to 80%, you got 22, that's not even, I mean, it, it's just such a low number of, when we say affordable housing, that's the number we're talking about. We're not really talking about the uh, 80 to 120% AMI in our heads when we think workforce housing. And I don't even know how much of our community is making over 120% AMI. Down the road, that's what we good to have. But, because um, I'm sure it's just gonna get more expensive up here. But this is definitely seeming to be something to address way down the roads issues of affordable housing rather than our affordable housing need now except for, well, the fair market value will take care of itself. And that's my worry is that right now we're gonna depend on the fair market value being flooded enough that it's gonna keep these prices down, which is great, but are we gonna turn around in 10 years from now be going, well, where are we putting these people who make less than 50% of AMI? Because we've got 16 here. So I'm just, that, that is one concern I have in looking at the, the numbers. Uh, that it, it seems very heavy on the high end rather than the low end. And I do know you need to meet numbers to afford um, having lower AMI. So no, I'm not. I, I guess I, I, I'm not unless y'all. I guess my question to that would be: Is are y'all of like what is your flexibility in growing that actual workforce housing? Because if it's 50 to 80 in Houston, it's definitely that here. Is there a way to grow that? Yes, um, and that that was part of the discussion at the last planning commission meeting. We are looking at increasing those numbers on the low end. Part of the issue is it does have to pass underwriting. And so when you know, the loan underwriters are going to look at the uh, feasibility of the project in light of the deed restriction. And to do it um, you know, without a lot of you know, direct public, say, grant funding, um, you, you can't have 100% of the units be available at less than 50% AMI and have the underwriter say, this project will succeed. So we are trying to be as flexible as possible while keeping the feasibility of the project in mind. And so we're working on that right now. The numbers at the low end are going to go up. It, it, it's not going to be, you know, 60% of the project is at less than 50% AMI. It's not going to be that drastic, but they are going to change. And the only other thing I can add, again, is 
all of the deed restricted units are available for those low income folks. I know you guys have received input from a consultant that we are, there just isn't the demand at the high income levels. And so we're oversupplying that, that income target. Well, if there isn't the demand at those income levels, who's going to fill the needs? Right. Lower income folks. So, so those units are available to them. So that, that's part of the reason for the flexible approach. And again, we are working on the numbers that are going to change. But it's not secured for them down the road. Not by deed That's true. Okay. And is the mechanism by which the price is lower just you'd rather have some rent than an empty unit? Is that how it is that how the market drives it down and makes it available to people who would be paying Yeah, less? exactly, okay. right? Yeah. I just, I, I just yeah. want to make sure no, I'm sure. correctly. <laughs> I'm not a businessman. <laughs> um, okay, boss, Paul, anyone? Has there been floor plans developed? No. Because I heard previously you talked about bedrooms, maybe one parking space per bedroom, so it makes me think there has been floor plans developed. No, we just have a number of bedrooms that were a number of bedrooms per unit. Right, so we have a certain amount of two-bedroom units, a certain amount of one-bedroom units, a certain amount of uh, efficiency units, and then the only ones that are three-bedroom units are the duplexes. But no floor plans have been uh, How close are the buildings to uh, Brush Creek Road? There's still some, I mean, the finalization of the survey. Well, and that would be the... the how close they are to the right of way, uh, but to the actual physical road itself, uh, I don't know that exact answer. It's about 40 feet. That's what I'm kind of looking at right there. Yeah. And uh, what are what are the dimensions of the three largest buildings? The three largest buildings down here are about 53 by 120, 53, 55. Is there a reason why those three, the, the three largest buildings are in alignment and not responding to the topography or not trying to be more broken up than they're massing? It seems like collectively they're uh, creating sure. more difficulty by being in alignment. Well, the three largest buildings are, you know, if you look at it on this, um, because of the hard line of the south, property line. We lined the four plexes up to respond to the solar and because we have the street that was straight, we wanted the buildings. And you know, these are very representational. There will be a lot of different step backs to the front of the buildings. Um, but another reason is as you drive down, spend a lot of time driving around and looking around us. As you're driving down Brush Creek, I mean driving down Highway 135 from town, you really at that perspective get the um, the greatest view of this site. You don't see it as much as you're coming up from the south, but as you're driving down from the north, from Crested Butte, you look into the site, and I wanted to create view corridors through the site, so you never looked at the site and saw buildings, you know, scattered throughout the site that you can't see through. So as you're driving down the site, there's this strong view corridor as you see through down to Cement Mountain. So I wanted to keep that intact. You'll never see these three buildings ever at once unless you're flying in a helicopter up above, right? You know, because from the south, from the road, you know, there's this big berm where you see over and you can't see over the four plexes in the front. So that was, that was basically how we did that. We could, you know, play around with the juxtaposition of them, but 
you know, bigger buildings become difficult to start rotating and turning and and uh, and moving. So that was the reason there. What's the gap in between the buildings? About 30 feet. 30 feet in between each building? Yeah. Yeah, if we want to, can we, if we can go back to that AMI uh, topic. Uh, let's say this is fully filled out. Um, how are you guys going to be managing these different units? And, you know, looking at a letter that was in the paper recently, um, you know, what guarantee are you going to be servicing the percent of AMI at around 60, 70% if you guys are going to be you know, making more money off the people who are at the 80% income level. Um, how do you guys see yourselves managing this through the years um, in terms of really trying to service the need, which seems to be the sub 50%? So in terms of the, the management and ensuring compliance, I don't know if that was part That's of the part question. Of it, yeah. So, you know, there as part of the application process, the applicants will have to provide, you know, proof of their income level to ensure that they qualify. Um, the the frame the county most likely de delegated to the housing authority is going to have enforcement powers. They will have the ability to, you know, we will initially, you know, we'll submit voluntary reports, but they will also have the ability to audit. Um, and so there will be enforcement to ensure we are not, you know, circumventing the restrictions that are in place. Then, was part of your question, are we going to lease them all to people at 80% instead of, say, 51%? Yeah, in relation to the management of the units, how are you guys going to be ensuring that you're servicing that whole bracket as opposed to the highest level? I hadn't really thought of that, and I think because we're, we're probably not anticipating being so lucky that we will have 30 applicants that make exactly 80% of AMI, and we can reject everyone between 79 and 50. It's going to be a diverse mix. Folks are going to be applying. Units are going to be coming open. It's basically catch as catch can. Yeah. You're not going to reject a. 60% AMI applicant hoping that a 80% AMI applicant comes in the door the next day. Sure. I, so I, I think it's a lot of it's just kind of practical realities of managing a, an apartment complex. Gary may be able to speak to that a little bit more. No. We've talked with the Gunnison Housing Authority. We're wanting them to be involved in approving the ones in these different income brackets. And so we're going to partner together on the application approval process. Where on the free market, you know, we can handle that. But on this other part, by having them involved up front, where the application is sent to them, we'll let them do the income and all the other requirements and verification. That will help take care of any potential audit and so forth because they'll be on the front line of what's happening. Yeah. Also, we're involving them from the very get-go and helping to develop the deed restrictions in a manner that makes them feel comfortable. So this isn't being done with us on the outside. It's being done in cooperation with the Gunnison Housing with the thought that they're going to be in the position to enforce these deed restrictions. Yeah. Um, I guess just to follow up on that, uh, a straight up question is how, 
what, what's the highest amount of uh, units kind of reserved for about 50% or less of AMI and the highest amount of units reserved for 50% to 80% of AMI that you guys would be okay putting into the project without increasing the number of core market units to compensate for that? Right now, we have a total of 65% in some variety. I mean, I'm talking specifically about the, the one, you know, for example, only 6% 6, 6 of the 240 units will be reserved for people, that 16 units that build out will be reserved for people who make less than 50%, and then um, we're looking at about 20% will be reserved for 50 to 80%. What is the highest number, like how high are you guys willing to raise those numbers without, like, changing the set scope of the project. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do is figure out where that number yeah. can be at. And we are, we have been increasing that number more down toward the lower end of the scale. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have any numbers that you guys are willing, kind of thinking about throwing out or that, like, if you guys are thinking about this now, have you thought about a higher number? Yeah, it, it's a, it's very much a work in progress. And the ultimate caveat is that the HUD underwriters will have the final say. So with that caveat, I mean, we've been, you know, that 6.66% at 50% AMI, I don't know. We're kind of thinking 10 to 15. So somewhere between increasing by 50% to almost doubling. Mm -hmm. um, units at less than 120% AMI, you know, or sorry, less than 80% AMI could go from 24% up to I mean, we're kind of looking at 30% to one-third of the units. So, you know, like I said, we're not, we're not moving all the way to the other end of the spectrum. We're, it, it's, yeah. But it is a shift. And the other factors that come in and make it difficult is we don't know exactly some of the restrictions. In, in last week's meeting, you know, some of them would say, look, we would like to see a minimum of one-year lease and or maybe six months. We initially were starting off at three. So the longer you extend that lease, the harder it is sometimes yeah. to, to find various people that can fit into those income levels. And that it makes, you know, if everyone has to be on a one-year lease and they all have to be employed and, sure. and all their income comes 100% from Gunnison uh, County, and that makes it more difficult the number of units you can provide at that lower income level. Because yeah. you have so many seasonal workers. So that plays a factor into how many we can provide at the lower income. I mean, Kendall mentioned that the ultimate say might be just what HUD will underwrite. Are you guys willing to commit to make it as affordable as HUD will allow? That's how we've structured, that's how I've structured this from the beginning. Because look, everything that I own, if you draw a, a, put a stake in the middle of Houston to draw a 15 mile surface circumference, everything I own is inside that little area. This is the first time I've ever done anything outside that area. It's a, because my whole goal in being involved in this deal is really to try to be a help to the community. I'm not, and, and I'm doing this pure. There is no profit motive in this thing. I, I, uh, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Come on, guys. Please, there's public commentary later. You know, I don't know how I can, other than, look, that, that's, that's what my intent was. I didn't get started in this thing and trying to build something and flip it to someone else. My goal was to do it, no government assistance, because I know in reading the paper it's always been very difficult. My, my goal is to just keep this in our portfolio, 
and, and all I'm trying to do is just structure this thing where I can break even and pay the mortgage on this. This thing only represents like 4% of my portfolio. Uh, it, I really just want to do this to be a help to the community and just try to break even. So we're trying to structure this with the HUD financing to just be, what's the maximum number of units we can do as low as possible and still get past the underwriting. Well, why can't we do it less dense? I mean, is, this the, is it still the number thing? I mean, it's it's too dense and it's too suburban given the rural setting. I mean, why, why can't we reconsider that a less dense, um, you know, proposal? Because I think if you get any less dense, when I first came, maybe there might be a little bit of flexibility, but as time has gone on, and then in the different meetings, everything, all the suggestions and all the changes add cost to the project, and it makes it more difficult to try to get this to get past underwriting, and to where you need the 240 units just because of the amount of infrastructure that comes in, and trying to do it with no government assistance. You know, you can make it smaller density, but then you're going to need some government assistance to make it break even. Well, if there's no water, like I said, you can't get through the LUR process. Okay. And that's sort of a different issue. What, what is, um, what's phase one of this? 128 units. And which, which units are those? Basically everything to the north. Which is, which ones? So that along Brush Creek Road and then, I believe. So, okay, along Brush Creek and and the 16 plexus. Okay. Right. And it's going to include the transportation center and the 69 parking spaces and all. So that's that's phase one. What? I guess I guess by because I do understand you're putting in the infrastructure for the whole thing, and then you're while you're building phase one, you're not going to make sewer plant double the size of the sewer plant or something like that down the road when you do phase two. Have, have you done? Um, I guess, how long do you think it's going to take to fill phase one and get it to an income level in which you can then move on to phase two? Well, we hope, you know, we talked to a lot of large employment-based centers. They've all expressed an interest in taking a certain number of units under a master lease or some type of first option. And really, we, you know, just... We could almost fill the first 128 almost just on that alone. Okay, so I know traffic's been talked about a lot um, and why this makes sense. Are any of those employers in Gunnison? Or are they all up here? Most of those employers, well, they would consist of all your, from anywhere from the college to the hospital to Mount. See the, the, the resort, uh, school district. So how does that help? I mean, I, I, and I'm only throwing this out because traffic's such an issue, and I don't understand necessarily why it's such an issue besides the pollution, which is huge. But then you're moving the population up here, and so they're all driving down south. I, I, I don't know how then how traffic becomes an even argument in this. Yeah. If you're just moving the population. There's a number of people that live in Gunnison that have to travel and commute up to the valley that are even, right. aren't even employed by all those various people that I named. Right. 
a lot of those would be potential people that would be moving in. I really believe this project can largely by, be filled by just those people that have to commute from Gunnison to their place up here in the northbound. But then literally proposing that we offer this housing to the college, to the hospital, so that those people can drive south. I told you, that's, that is some of the people who have expressed an interest. The school district has employees up here. Uh, you know, there's a number of, uh, so uh, yes. It, it, it makes sense. I, I mean, I, I, I follow the thinking, I just don't follow why. I don't fo follow why if we're gonna be housing them up here, we're talking about traffic at all as being this benefiting traffic. I don't think it's going to hurt it by having them move up here. I think it's just going to be the same. Basically, you're saying is that why are we putting all of this affordable housing in one little spot instead of putting some of it in Gunnison? Exactly. Putting some of our resources. I mean, not saying that some of our resources would go to affordable housing in the South Valley. Well, I mean, I'm sure is they will. I mean, they're they're, they're working on that too. I just I, my my whole question is is if we're going to reserve places for this, let's stop talking about traffic because we're not fixing traffic. I don't see how it fixes traffic. I get that some people are traveling up here and there are going to be people that are going to always continue traveling up here. Has there been a market study done on this? Sorry. Have y'all done a market study? Because y'all follow a lot of the, the needs assessment and then you also have issues with the needs assessment. So have y'all done your own market study? We're, we're working on it. Working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Would y'all be willing to share that once it's done? I'm, I'm sure we will. Yeah. Okay. The, and and re, with respect to like the school, Western, yeah. mo, the benefit of this project, even if they do have some employees live here, the, the greater benefit to them is you have so many people working in the North Valley, living in Gunnison, when this project comes online, as those folks move to the North Valley closer to where they work, it takes the pressure off the housing shortage that's also happening in Gunnison. And to respond to one comment that was made from the council as part of that, this isn't all of the affordable housing. No. This is, you know, by 2020, you know, if this goes through, 128 units of the 432 that are needed. So this, this is not the silver bullet. This is one piece of the puzzle. Right. You know, so the city of Gunnison is working on things, you know, both, both free market and government, um, you know, assisted. So other things are being done, just to be clear. Uh, um, the previous council had a big problem, or at least was very concerned with the idea of this parcel being transferred before the LUR approval. I'm curious, who proposed that? Did the county propose that to you guys? Or did you propose it to the county? And what's the reasoning? Why Why do you want to own it before? Like, aren't you worried you're going to be stuck with this piece of land that, if, say, the approval process doesn't go, go your way at all, you're stuck with this piece of land that you bought for an amazing price, admittedly, but you're, you're not going to be you're not going to be able to build this great model that you built. Did you propose it to the county, or did the county propose it to you? Well, I think the original proposal, <coughs> but you know, 
may be a transfer of property, you can't do anything other than what's going to be approved through the LPR process. And the reduction in the price is really just part of what helped allowed us to provide a certain number of units at the variety, you know, of the income levels. I, I'm just curious. So the, the initial thought was, and I think actually the staff report to you guys for this meeting reflected that the the original anticipated path, both by the developer and by the four entities that were part of, you know, that are part of the ownership group, was to complete the closing before the land use application ever got filed. And you know the fact that the transfer has taken longer than anticipated so that both are now happening at the same time, it's, it's, it's more that the sale got slowed down, not that it got sped up. And so I, I think to answer your question, whose idea was it? You know, a few months ago, right after the RFP process was completed, I think it was both sides I can't, I honestly can't remember who pitched it, but both sides were on the same page with respect to that. And just to, you know, there, there is a, let's squash this one too. He's not getting a piece of property for $100,000 such that if this project gets denied, he now has a multi-million dollar piece of property he can do whatever with. There is going to be a deed restriction that says this property can only be used for a project you know, consistent with what was in your RFP response and in your land use change application. So it doesn't go through, nothing left to do with the property. The county can buy it back. Um, and, you know, you guys have seen all the documents. It's not a state secret. Right now, the, the, the buyback price is $125,000. So that's a $25,000 margin. That's about what Gary's had to pay the county just in fees to review the application. He's not making a profit here. I'm just curious, it, why it, do you it, want to own it before the, the approval? Is it for the HUD application? I just don't know. I'm not a developer. I, well, it's hard to get HUD excited if you don't own it. If, if you don't own anything. Okay. I'm going to switch directions a little bit. We're going to j just, yeah, um, you guys can both ask a couple, but then we're going to move to public comment. Okay, yeah. Um, I was in a Mountain Express meeting this morning, and we're just talking about where the bus stop is and whether you guys anticipate using the RTA or the Mountain Express. You know, Mountain Express does go down to CB South. They pay for that. But um, as board, the Mountain Express board, they just don't think that this driving all the way in and, Mike, Mike Wright might be able to answer the question if this is even a, that's a public road there. Yes, Getting on the Wright Ranch Road, but um, they requested that they, that thing be somewhere else, more accessible. So they're not, you know, turning in, driving down. Um, so I just recommend you talk to RTA, not about a more suitable bus stop. We have had meetings with both entities, and there are pros and cons to where this is developed or where this is located. The location we have proposed in this plan is much more accessible to the community at large. There's much more likely to be folks that would use it from Skylands adjacent communities than if it were down at the corner, closer to the highway. And so there's there is give and take. 
to, to both of those situations. And we do realize that Mountain Express doesn't have enough bus storage for an additional bus, and this is something we want to work through with them. We're not at that point in this proposal yet, but we acknowledge that that is an issue that that we want to help solve. There's okay. also a topography issue associated with that. Okay. Down by the highway. And, and, and all right, well, that, that was their request. Okay. Just quickly, the housing need assessment speaks to strategies of uh, solving affordable housing, essential housing, with a mix of both ownership and rental. And I would like you to answer the question, if we're, are you going to include some ownership opportunities with this project? Um, I, I read the chart that you showed earlier. It says 171 rental units are needed. Your project is proposing more than that, overwhelming that number. Um, so I'm concerned that we'll have to compensate and have an overwhelming response of some sort of other solution for ownership opportunities. And again, I, I don't know if you're going to have that included in your proposal along the way. So the answer is right now, no, ownership is not part of this proposal. Again, the idea of oversupply, look, 128 units at most by 2020 compared to 171 needed in the North Valley. So I'm not sure where the oversupply argument is coming from. And when we look at the needs assessment and the recommendation to have a diverse mix of ownership and for sale or rent for rental opportunities, that's across the valley, right? The town of Crested Butte is developing for sale opportunities, pure for sale opportunities, correct? Both. Right. So, you know, there's... You go to other sites, you know, whether it's, um, you know, in different subdivisions that get approved and they've got, as part of their approval, they have to restrict a certain number of lots as for sale opportunities. There are a tremendous number of already deed restricted, you know, for sale lots available in the North Valley. And so you have to look at the portfolio as a whole. No single project viewed in isolation is going to line up perfectly pro rata with the needs identified in the needs assessment. So you have to look at the portfolio as a whole. And it just, it makes more economical sense when you have a parcel of this size to do a for rent project that can be managed with efficiency and economies of scale rather than doing a mix of for sale and rental here and then having to do, you know, some two or three unit for rental project somewhere else, it, it just becomes more difficult, more costly to manage. Mm -hmm. Can it be quick? Yeah, well, I, I hope so. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, considering parking and the uh, intercept lot was a big purpose from the original MOA, um, how did you guys come up with 69 spots? And is that in reference to any kind of study or cooperation with uh, the towns, you know, if there's a potential parking plan and stuff like that. I mean, uh, how did you come up with 69 spots and how are you going to ma make sure that those 69 spots stay in public use and don't get used as overflow parking because there might not be enough? What we did um, in meeting with RTA talk about the, the other park and ride facilities in the valley and they, their average number is 25 parking spaces. We know that's not enough for this particular situation we're providing. There's some perhaps park and ride, and there's some 
intersect. And so some of it was a balance between, well, this is our absolute minimum. How much more can we fit on the site? And that's really where we came to the, you know, we can push it to 69 spaces. That's what would fit within the footprint. Um, and then finally, just so we can all understand a little more, is how, how are you financing this project? Um, how long do you plan on it taking for you to pay back the loan you're taking out? Um, and you know, what's your plan once it's all done? If you're not going to make any profit off this, what are you planning on doing once it's over with and it's only 4% of your overall portfolio? Financing is, will be a permanent financing HUD program that's sort of designed toward workforce housing. You get certain reductions in interest rates by the more workforce housing you do if you make it a green project. And that's a long-term rate that doesn't have a, uh, it's, it, it totally amortizes out over a 35-year period. The amount of money that I had to put up will be based anywhere probably from 25% to as low as maybe 15% equity. Um, so. That's what I'll be putting in is equity and then income after expenses. It's required a 1.2 debt coverage ratio. And as long as I can meet that, then it should be able to get the loan. Gary, do you have an appraisal on the property? No. All right, I'm going to, we're already like 14 minutes behind. Uh, I would like to reserve at least 10 minutes for follow-up after public comment, so that leaves us 20 minutes. How many people really want to get up and speak and give some public comment? I just want to get a head count so I can give, you know, this is how long everybody has. All right, I see 10. That's two minutes apiece. I have Derek's got one. It's like, um, you know, if someone says something that you were going to say, feel free to not come up and talk. We don't need to hear anything twice. Uh, please keep everything respectful. Remember that this is you know, a public meeting, and we're just trying to get input from everybody. Yeah, and please address the council. That's who you're talking to. That's it. Who wants to go first? And yeah, say your name and address and for the record. And then go on up to the podium if you're standing right next to it and you raised your hand. It's not really a record. <laughs> Um, so my name is Laura Anderson Irwin. I um, have a house on Fairway Drive near where this development is. Um, I'm not totally against this, but I have some specific concerns about um, the amount of affordable housing. So um, they have him, uh, Mr. Gates, Mr. Gates has actually said that um, the 50 to 80 percent is that Class C housing, and you even said that that is 15 to 20 dollars an hour. So I'd like you guys to think about 15 to 20 dollars an hour. How many restaurants on, are there on Elk Avenue with multiple employees who make less than $15 to $20 an hour? I know for a fact down in Gunnison there are many businesses that a lot of employees make far less than $15 an hour. For example, Tractor Supply, the starting salary or hourly there is $10 an hour. These are the people that keep our economy going. <clears throat> we need people who can pour coffee, people who can move sacks of grain, people who can work at Walmart. These people are the ones who are struggling for affordable housing. And 16 units is not going to cut it. We need a lot more than that. If there are at least 20-some restaurants on Elk Avenue, and even all of those just have two employees that need affordable housing, 
that is not nearly enough affordable housing for them. That's 16 units and that, just the restaurants alone would need 40 units. And that's not even including bartenders, um, anybody who's working in services, who works down in Riverbend or Riverland. It is not anywhere near enough what we need. I have delivery men who make above that wage or around that wage, and they can't afford to live um, in this valley, and they would not be able to afford a $900 a month rent. Um, so I'd like to point that out. Secondly, um, I would uh, beg you to think about the long-term cost of this and how we're kicking the can down the road to our children because um, at some point this water treatment plant is going to grow old and somebody's going to have to take care of it. And who is going to pay for the traffic light? Thank you. Yeah. Who wants to go next? Yeah, you guys might want to just start lining up since it's a short way. There's only two while they're lining up, I'll talk because I want to go to that. Okay, that's okay. I want to take issue with something. Can you just state your name? David Lyonsdorf. I'm on Free Treasury Hill Road. I have an office at 215 Elk Avenue. And I'm here for the Friends of Brush Creek. Kent said that these buildings here are the largest. It's not true. This is the largest because it's got 32 units. And they call them eight plexes, but there are four eight plexes getting together. So this is twice the square footage of Anthracite Point. These two units, these two buildings are larger than these. They're one and a half times the size of Anthracite Point. Um, I want to take issue with something that uh, John said which is that this is going to ameliorate the uh, traffic issue. The needs assessment said most of the people who work up here and live in Gunnison want to live in Gunnison. So I just don't think the traffic issue is going to be ameliorated by this project. Thank you. Uh, Jim Schmidt. Uh, two quick questions, hopefully they're quick. Uh, the first one I was going to ask is what the average rent for the entire complex has to be to make this work. Free market and deed uh, restricted. I'm guessing if there hasn't been a, a, a marketing study done that you probably don't have those numbers. Um, and also, the second combination of that is how many units need to be rented to make this fly. Things go up and down here with national economy and um, the prospect of, of a big empty building out there. Uh, it's, it's not a good one at all. The second point I would like to make, and I know uh, the instruction was to ask the council, but um, there's been a lot of lovey-dovey language here and intention and all that. I have sat on that side of the table since 81 for many, many years. Hope to sit on it again soon. Um, I have never seen or heard from an attorney a letter or presentation to the council that was so insulting, condescending, mm -hmm. a clue 
accusing the council of colluding with a consultant of an impeccable recommendation that was hired by the uh, county, by all four entities of the county, including the city of Gunnison, Mount Crestview, Crestview, the county housing authority. About 10 seconds. Um, I guess I would like, frankly, I expected the first thing to happen tonight would be an apology for that letter that Mr. Burmeister wrote. And I would just like to know if Mr. Gates approved of that letter, if that is the attitude we're supposed to expect, or is it going to be truly something for the community? Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Hello, my name is Bob Panier. I'm going to try to keep mine well under two minutes. Um, the first clarification I'd like to make is um, David brought up something about people commuting from Crestview or from Gunnison to Crestview. If you look at the um, the housing needs assessment, less than 10% of the people who are commuting here want to live here. So that's it's not just a majority; it is a very large majority, and you can find that in the needs assessment. It's under 10% of the people commuting from the South Valley that want to live in the North Valley. Second point I'd like to make is that the uh, applicants keep talking about their underwriting and the type of financing they're looking for. Well, the type of financing they're looking for, HUD offers three different types of financing. One is a market rate financing, another is a low to moderate income financing, and then the last one is like a section 42 or a low income financing. They are pursuing market rate financing because this project does not meet any definition from HUD for low-income housing. And so all the underwriting they're doing has to meet a market rate criteria. Just want to make that. The last point I'd like to make is I'd like the council to actually look out there. I'm not sure that there is another project in the state of Colorado of this size, this close to a resort community in the entire state. And I've tried to find one, and I have not found one. So you're looking at having the largest multifamily project in one of the smaller resort communities in the state. Just like to make that point. Thank you. Thanks, Bob. Hi, I'm Susan Tizer. I live up Cement Creek Road. And I personally am against this whole shenanigan going on. And the way I'm viewing it is that we are um, dealing with another land swipe. This happened many, many moons ago up in Mount Crested Butte when they did that whole freeway land swipe, so on and so forth. I believe that that's what Gatesville Corporation is trying to do with our town government, Mount Crested Butte, and the other entities that own that property, they're getting it for 10 cents on the dollar. And he's sitting here telling us, he's not doing it for profit, really? I don't believe it, and I'd like the council to know you're being swiped if you sell it to him. Thanks, Sue. Hi, I'm Nina Zimmel, um, resident in Skyland, my husband and I. And I'm also here to represent some other people. Um, Suzanne Pearson wrote a letter, and um, she and some other people, and I'll read their names, 
um, Suzanne Pearson, Monica Arowich, myself and my husband, Amy Devine and Doug Triggs, and Shell Caring also support this letter that Suzanne Pearson wrote. Um, and I'm going to keep it very brief, but um, Suzanne's points we concur with. Um, first of all, she wanted to thank the council for voting no on the resolution to move forward on Gatesco. Um, she had a question about land use committee. Has Gatesco followed all the rules of due process? And if so, please explain. Um, Gatesco, in her words, is a huge misfit for all pocketbooks, hurts on critical water issues, um, and I think we need a lot more um, analysis of that. Um, and the traffic safety issues, I think, also need to be uh, looked at very carefully. Um, it's time for a stoplight versus uh, a roundabout. Um, and where does the state stand on the development of the intersection? Um, and then there's a, a, a man that proposed ideas and solutions for our for communities by the name of Norman Eastwood. Um, called the Enclave Plan that I'd encourage you to take a look at. Um, can you build a bus transit center and affordable housing in Riverland? Would that be an option um, where we could maybe possibly hook up to exist existing water and sewer lines there? Um, and then we feel strongly no to any new water treatment plan on the you corner of Brush Creek um, because we need more information about the impact <coughs> on the Slate River. Um, so, I don't know anybody that really disagrees with our need and wanting to embrace affordable housing and what every person I've talked to um, is so concerned about is the density. To put so many units on one little corner uh, in such a beautiful area is just, it's just a travesty and, and I feel like this is, tra is being pushed through so quickly that not everybody's on the same page. And we talk about the importance of our community, and yet we're overlooking some of these really essential points that are very valid and really need to have some time spent on. Um, so. Thank you. Yes, if you could address those questions. Hello, my name is Elior Bilo. I live out on Brush Creek Road. And I have a few points I'd like to address today. Uh, first, I think it's good to find out what Gatesco, what kind of people Gatesco would like to have in his units. Does he want people who are living in tents? Does he want people coming into this valley to establish themselves and then move into new, better housing once they have themselves here? Or is he looking for supporting the people who are currently here already? Also, I'd like to address how close this, uh, the fourplexes, or no, their aplexes are to uh, Brush Creek Road. They said about 30 feet, so that's like the width of this room. There is not one building except for the barn out on the dirt uh, that is closer than 30 feet on Brush Creek. Also, uh, one thing that I'm concerned with personally is how will how efficient will the system be? They said they would they have looked into solar, and I think that's great. However, they only said they'll have panels on the buildings next to the highway. Also, water the number one most watered well, the number one thing that takes the most water in the United States is grass. 
and I see a lot of grassland there. How are they going to make that grass watered efficiently so that they can take it up from the well? And also, infrastructure, we've talked about roads a lot, and I agree with that. That corner is downhill, and it gets really icy in the winter. How are we going to make sure that that downhill won't cause crashes? And also, two things that people may not be thinking about. The Delhi Trail, they brought up maybe a way to commute people easier. However, it's uh, covered up by snow in the winter. There are no Nordic trails there. They start further down. And in the summer, it takes maintenance to keep that trail. Like this summer, they had to maintain the trail. They do every about two years. I ride on it every year. And finally, as a lot of people here are probably experiencing, we have to get the deal down with our internet. And how is 240 people on the north end of the valley going to affect our internet if we just 240 units, or 240 in, on just like that? How are we going to be able to support that in our current state? When people are already struggling with it right now. Thanks, so they were. Good evening. Um, thank you, Town of Crestview Council, for putting on this meeting. We appreciate this. My name is Eileen Gers, and my husband George Gers and I live at 25 125 Highway 135. And so our parcels of land are directly down gradient from your project. And I'm real concerned about the water issues. You know, we put up some well, we put a well in last year, and that well produces 15 gallons per minute. Okay, and I get a little nervous when I hear Two thirds of our original well from 40 years ago. So what my husband is saying is the flow is two thirds of the original well that we put in um, 40 years ago. And so when I hear developers talking about putting in infiltration galleries, up gradient, where's my water going to come from? If you're having to go to the extreme to put infiltration galleries in, where's my water going to come from? Where's everybody else's water going to come from? And, and you're going to be putting all your, does, is this a project that you want to put all your eggs in now? If you're going to look at over allocating water, do you have the water? Does the Slate River have the assimilative capacity to handle a development of this size? There's a term that's called biochemical oxygen demand, and that talks about how much organic matter is discharged from an individual house. And <coughs> the organic load from this project can have impacts on the dissolved oxygen levels in the Slate River. The other thing I would ask your um, proposal to look at is you're estimating 75 gallons per day per capita for this project. Um, I've done a lot of water reviews in the state of Colorado. I went online to look at the average per capita usage in the state of Colorado is 120 gallons per day. Mm. So I think you should look at your water projection and if you're low by 40%, that in fact that has impacts on the entire scale of your project, on how much water you're going to be using. But not only that, your calculations for your wastewater discharge should be calculated up to that 120 gallons per day per person. So we, um, as adjacent property owners, this project has a significant ability 
to um, degrade the quality of life that we have. I'm concerned about the wastewater issues, and especially the water issues, um, because I think this project will harm um, our properties. Thank you. Thank you. My name's Grant Bremer. Uh, I live on Rush Creek Road in Buckhorn Ranch, and I'm an employee of the Skyland Metropolitan District and the East River Sanitation <coughs> District. And I uh, thought that this meeting tonight was talked mostly about the Memorandum of Agreement. And if you look at that Memorandum of Agreement, it was supposed to address two things, parking and affordable housing. The proponents tonight have hardly mentioned the fact that there's only one and a half parking spaces per unit at this development whether it's a studio or a three-bedroom apartment. So that flies in direct contradiction to what this piece of property was purchased for. The other thing to think about is this is touted as an essential housing project. The memorandum of agreement was for an affordable housing project. The two, those two things are not mutually exclusive. Affordable housing is part of an essential housing project. An essential housing project is not necessarily an affordable housing project. And I think you should consider that. Also, you guys have not decided to sell this piece of property yet. The way that MOA was set up is you guys get a vote, and if not, if everybody doesn't vote for this, the sale cannot be transferred. That's my understanding. And I uh, encourage you to hold firm on that memorandum of agreement to meet those criteria that were set up 20 years ago for parking and affordable housing. And uh, while you have one vote and they have three votes, it's three votes against one, it takes all four of those votes for this thing to pass. But take a look who's being impacted by this. Is it CBMR, Mount Crested Butte, or Gunnison County? Gunnison? Not really, it's the town of Crested Butte and the Brush Creek Corridor. And I appreciate that you take uh, the time to listen to the Brush Creek Corridor constituents. Thanks a lot. If there's Brief, nobody else. Briefly, yeah. I live in town at 117 T. Collie. I own a business in town. I just thought it was important for a representative town to come up and share the thoughts of many locals that I speak with. Um, I think that everybody's had really great points, so I don't need to reiterate the water, uh, the sewer situation, the parking, the internet I thought was really clever that maybe we've missed out. Um, I would like to commend their hiring of Andrew Hadley. I believe greatly in his designs. I think that we couldn't ask for a better designer uh, for the project, so I do believe what you say that you're trying to accomplish with the terrain, the view corridors, but I still think that the overall appeal at this point is that you're not o o offering uh, affordable housing, you're offering essential housing. I think that was a really great point that Grant made, so I think we should really reflect back on that, as well as the point that the council has made so far on the below 50% or AMI of 50%. Um, I think it's overall too dense is what I hear from people. Uh, traffic is still a huge concern. Um, what I want to bring to this discussion at this point is I deal with affordable housing. I sell real estate in town. My office is on Elk Avenue. Um, I deal with Gunnison Housing Authority, why they do a really great job. I think that by these guys promoting that they're going to be involved and solve all our issues as far as qualifying people and overseeing it is 
really overstating the situation. And I think that would put a lot of pressure on that entity that's Gunnison County uh, entity to run a project of this for one developer coming from outside that we all don't feel great about. And that's all I got to say. Thank you. Um, a, a large purpose of this was for us to take input from the proponent, from the public, and then we've only got 10 minutes left. What are we going to do with this input we've just got? We need to use it to inform, you know, we are a review agency on this proposal. The Planning Commission is the approval agency, ultimately the Board of Commissioners. Um, we submit input to the Planning Commission, and this is meant to inform our input. So in the remaining 10 or so minutes, what do you guys think as a council? What do you want to address? Specific questions that just came up. I'm sure there are a couple. Um, somebody talk. Or I will, I can only. So you want us to address questions that we heard of? If you have some, you'd like to answer them? I, well, I can't answer No, that. I'd like, if you have questions you'd like to ask, passing them on from the public. And I think uh, they made some really good points, and they need to make these points down at, during the LUR process and to the county directly. And I think Gary's open to speak to people, and everybody on the team is open to talk to people about this. It's not uh, looking, you know, this group of people here definitely are seeing less in favor of the density. Um, I think everybody in this room is in favor of affordable housing. And how we're going to make that work, the situation and the way it's looking, uh, I've been looking at the, the situation from the beginning as, as the water, the traffic, the impact. Um, and it does seem like a lot at once. And, uh, but we, we do need a lot. But is this the appropriate place? Is this the appropriate uh, um, density? Uh, David showed, you know, multiple anthracite places being put up there, but uh, yeah, being able to manage one of those versus being able to manage four of those can be difficult. So we're asking good questions. Let's keep this on track. Um, you know, we started out this meeting, John made it all lobby dubby with Morales community. But when there's only 16 units dedicated to um, real, I mean, below 50% of AMI, which is affordable housing, it just doesn't add up for me. I mean, Thank you. you know, 16 units isn't enough of, a, of affordable housing. And that's what we want there, for, you know, parking and affordable housing. And they have all this free market housing. Is this gonna, you know, start, saturate the market? And then, you know, where are we going to get any affordable, affordable housing in town? Like, we want to have people own houses. They can be proud of their property and not just be in this rental, stuck in rentals. And uh, it's just disappointing that there's no, nothing to purchase and the, the lower than 50% AMI units are so low. It just doesn't add up for me. It doesn't feel right. I guess, and I've, I've discussed this uh, before, but I guess with, with me, my biggest concern is the placement of it. Um, 
being out two miles from town, I know it seems convenient. Um, I think I, I do think we need rental. I think it, we need affordable rental. Um, when, if we're talking about affordable, if we're talking about creating affordable development. I think we have to definitely make sure we're creating not just a lot of free market that'll go low because the market's saturated, but we've got to protect our future for having affordable housing. And I know it costs the public a ton of money to create affordable housing, but if this is a short-term solution, which it honestly sounds more like right now as it stands, with the number of affordable, which I am saying is below that 80%, because those are the people that we hire, that we need, that are struggling. And they're gonna be struggling all that much more in 20 years from now. And we have run out of all this space. I understand that finding this spot, y'all pick this spot because there's very little available to pick. And I guess one of my, Questions would be as if something came up that was because we're talking about creating sewer, creating, you know, figuring out water, figuring out, you know, we're losing a lot of transit parking that will be needed down the road 20 years from now. Uh, we're going to have to come up with another piece of land for it. Would you consider building apartments if there was something actually in a town, in Crested Butte, in Mount Crested Butte? Um, maybe even CB South where the community can grow right there with these employees. And because you're talking outside of town, if a piece of land became available in one of our towns, would that even be considered? Or are you set on this piece of land and this project? You guys? Yeah, sure. Um, I think when I look at what I care about in this project, I mean, is this, is this workforce housing, affordable housing, or essential housing? Um, and if we're really trying to deal with our affordable housing issue, you guys really need to do way better than even, um, you know, a 10 or 15% of the less than 50% of AMI. Um, and that, that, that's pretty personal to me because I would be in that housing, <laughs> and I would be there with a lot of my friends, um, but maybe they wouldn't have spaces in there, and there would only be 15 other people. Um, so I, th I think when you, when you look at the project as being more essential housing and having all these four market units without an option for ownership, um, without more of them being set aside for affordable housing, it really doesn't feel like you're fully not making any money off of this. And I think that sentiment um, is shared by a lot of people. Yeah, um, you know, my question overall is, are you gonna respond to what you've been hearing the last two months since the Center for the Arts meeting? It's been almost two months. And there's a lot of this has been said then. And, and I, I hear some response adjusting to the AMI categories, but is there gonna be a physical response to the size of the project. Um, you know, I, I, as well as everybody in here, appreciates uh, somebody wanting to offer affordable housing and doesn't want, uh, doesn't want to, it's not motivated by profit. Um, and I think uh, how we do that is what we've been talking about, how we do it to match our community. 
And I'd like to see it um, adjusted to match our, what the needs are and be realistic, as you said earlier, and see realistic solutions. Um, so adjusting uh, AMI category is one thing, but I think um, the overall size, scale of the project needs to be adjusted as well. If, if there is really no profit motive, um, you know, any project of any scale or size is ensured that a profit of over time, uh, whatever is put here over time is guaranteed to, to have a profit of some sort. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, when I met with John O'Neill, he asked me, you know, you know, Crested Butte has a, a kind of a infamous for saying no to stuff. And I think what I want to express is that we want to say yes to this. We want to get behind it. But we want it to have the, the meat and potatoes that really matter for our community. Um, and, and how we can adjust that, I believe, when John asked me, is to adjust the MI levels down to make it to make it better. To start to include ownership opportunities, as the kind of centralizing <coughs> assessment speaks to. Having some of that in this project is begin to have some balance. Right now, it's completely out of balance. It's all rental. Um, and then back to just ensuring compatibility with the neighborhood, with the size size of the buildings, um, the size of the overall project. It's at least twice as big as some of the comparables you showed tonight, um, and the density in use. So I think the proponent has a wonderful opportunity to uh, potentially bring our whole community together and get some people behind it, get, get a, a different towns coming together, different ends, ends of the valley coming together. It's really an opportunity for you to respond and, and do something that everybody can start to support. So please do that. That's our time unless... I got one more thing. Oh, yeah, please. Um, just throwing out there, I know I think outside the box sometimes, you know, if this was at a better density, you might be able to get a waste, get into the wastewater treatment plant in town or in the East River in the East, you know, grants, grants. Instead of, you know, what are you going to spend a million dollars to do a wastewater treatment plant? I mean, if we get this density down where everybody's happy, of course we need affordable housing. Of course we need essential service workers housing. But, I mean, let's work so that we're not building another wastewater treatment plant. You know, regional. Yeah, it could go to. Uh, East River, or I guess we could pump it back up. But uh, to get there, you're going to have to appease Brush Creek, us, make this less dense. 